0: Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Uh, And as we enter 2024, um, you may notice if you watch the news at all that the presidential election coverage is picking up and we're all like, not again, like we have to do this every four years. Like it really is a struggle. It is a total mess. And I don't know if you ever saw the movie Idiocracy. Um, That is what we're devolving into. The movie Idiocracy, uh, Luke Wilson is transported 500 years into the future and he wakes up and America is a complete clown show. Uh, And it is the political culture we live in right now. And Terry Crews, muscles and all, is President Camacho flexing his muscles, bouncing his pecs and firing off machine guns. And that's what it feels like when we think about politics in 2024. Um, Every time we watch a debate, I, I just come away trusting these people less. I want to pull my hair out every single time I watch one of these. And the reason is, is that we don't trust the people we're hearing. Um, Political trust is at an all-time low. In fact, this is really intriguing because studies showed that between 1950 and 1967, political trust among the public was somewhere between 75 and 80 percent. Now, I might have been a little naive, but today that trust is less than 20 percent. After every single debate, it feels like we got to run to find a fact checker. And this is not a political sermon this morning, I promise. Um, we got to find a fact checker to see if we're being lied to. Is the person claiming these, all these crazy claims about themselves and about the economy and the government and their opponents, are they telling us the truth? And it seems that the bigger the claim, the more proof you need to back it up. The bigger the claim, the more proof you need. And that is why it is so striking when you look at the claims of Jesus. Because Jesus' claims are not small claims. They're big claims. They're claims that need evidence. And so if Jesus were to say something such as, you know, do these two to three things and you'll improve your posture. Um, Do these things and you'll live a better life. You know, uh, live this way, you'll be successful, you'll be happy. If those were the things that Jesus came and offered us, the advice and the teaching that was in his word, it'd be pretty low risk. Because if you tried these things, you'd be like, it's just like a facial care routine. Well, it didn't work, I'll just try the next one. The claims that Jesus makes are so much bigger than just, here's how to live a better life. And that's why the religious authorities were so mad at him. They were always upset with him. And we see this back in verse 18, which we covered last week. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus never came along and said, I'm just a good teacher. He never came along and said, I want to be a guide for your life, or want to be an accessory that you can add to your life. You can kind of just go on living however you want to, and I'm just going to be there to help you when you need me. He made claims such as, I am God, that he had the authority to do all things, that he had the authority to demand your and I's whole life. And so we have to wrestle with who Jesus is and what he's done. And really, we're left with three options. The writer C.S. Lewis wrote about this in Mere Christianity, And he said that Jesus is either one of three things. He's either a madman who he compared to being one who believed he was like a poached egg. It's a very British way to say someone's crazy. Um, Either he's the devil himself trying to lead you astray, or he's actually who he says he is. He's actually God. And so the question we're going to wrestle with today is why should you trust Jesus? And really, this is couched in Jesus' claim to be God. And so I want to give you three reasons this morning from John 5, why we believe that Jesus is God. The first we see is his relationship with the Father. Look, look at verse 19, if you have a copy of God's word, there's some in the pew back if you want to grab one. John toward the middle, um, you'll see a bunch of names, you probably never name your children, go past those, and then you'll find John. Um is, get to verse 19. And it says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, this was a very uh, teacher way of speaking to them, a rabbinical way. A Jewish teacher would say, truly, truly, or amen, amen, which means as the Lord wills. He would say, this is what God has for you. And he wants to show them through his teaching that his relationship with the Father backs his claim to be God. He says that I am like the father he says here he says truly truly i say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise now at first glance this seems like jesus might actually be saying the opposite he's saying here that i can do nothing apart from the father's will i can do nothing apart from his accord i can't do anything on my own And so it seems like Jesus would need permission or that he's incapable of doing these things, that he's subordinate to the Father. But we need to understand the context here is really key. The context here was that in the ancient world, sons would more often than not follow after their father's business. They would do the same work that their father had done. So if a son had watched his father be a blacksmith his entire life, his father would have been imparting the skills of a blacksmith to his son his entire life so that his son would grow up to become a blacksmith. In the same way, Jesus with his earthly father was a carpenter. His father Joseph was a carpenter and taught Jesus to take on the family business. So what's being said here is that Jesus is doing the father's business because he's taking up the family business as the only son. He's not venturing out onto his own work, doing his own thing. He's doing the work of the father because he's one with the father. And we see here a relationship of unity that the relationship that he has with the Father is one of unity. He says here, I can do nothing of my own accord. I'm not coming up with my own plans. He's saying that I never strayed away from the Father's will, that he would only do what the Father does because he never wanted to do anything different. He always was in lockstep with the Father as one who was one with the Father. In fact, he couldn't even attempt to do anything different because his identity is so tied up into his work that the Father's work is his work, that they are the same essence, God. And so what we see here is an uninterrupted relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which is what we call the Trinity. And Jesus' words here are the clearest picture of Jesus claiming the fact that he is God, that this is not imitation, but this is sameness, that he is the same work as the Father because that is who he is as God. So we see this relationship of unity, of oneness, of sameness. But we also do see Jesus submitting to the will of the Father. The while on earth, as a human, Jesus submitted to his Father's will. D.A. Carson describes it like this He says, The Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants. The Son responds, obeys, performs his Father's will, and receives authority. And what we see in this is that while Jesus was on earth, he submitted to the Father, and that didn't make him any less God. He was the same essence God, yet carried a different role in perfect unity with the Father, that he wasn't doing this begrudgingly, but the Father willed to send and the Son willed to be sent. They are in unity and relationship. Secondly, they have a relationship of love. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing his love for his son. It highlights their unity and their equality, and it's displayed here in the image that he is willing to show him all things. I have four children, and when my children were little, there are just certain things we're not going to talk about. There are certain things we're not going to share with them. There are certain uh, aspects of life that they're not going to be able to watch or experience because they're children. And as they get older, it's been kind of fun to be able to watch certain movies with them and talk about certain topics because they're getting older and eventually they're going to be my equal as adults. What Jesus is saying here is there's never been a point where the father and the son have not been equals. And that the father has expressed his love for the son by fully disclosing every plan that there's nothing hidden from the son. And this relationship of love is a relationship that's without ceasing. It's a relationship with the father is holding nothing back from the son. And you notice what Jesus does next. What he says next is really important. And he says, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. You see that all the things that the father is showing to the son, the son is displaying for us so that you and I would marvel at the goodness and the greatness of God. That everything Jesus did was to show you, to display the work of the Father. The Father disclosed all things to the Son, so everything that the Son did was to reveal the love of the Father. And what he does is, in doing this, is show us what God is like. And we see that there is greater work coming, and there's no greater work than this, than one who would lay down his life for his friends. That at the cross, the perfect display of the love of God shows us the will of the Father. But also, this is a relationship with responsibilities and blessings. And we see these sort of come in rapid fire in verses 21 through 23. We see it says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. We see that Jesus, first and foremost, is a life giver. Now, the idea that God would have been a life giver would not have been a a, a strange thing for the hearers who are hearing this or reading this. Uh, They would have read this and go, of course God gives life. Uh, we see so many Old Testament verses about God being the life giver. In the very beginning of the story, God breathes life into humans uh, into their nostrils. Job thirty three four says, "The spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life." But f- f- but for this Galilean carpenter to say, "I have the authority to give life," is a gigantic claim because when you look at Jesus on the surface. He didn't look like God. One of my favorite restaurants here in Boston is Brassica, which is right around the corner. We're not sponsored by them or anything, I promise. It's just really good food. Um, And back in the day, they used to be open during the week for lunch. And so I would go in there all the time and grab a coffee or lunch. And I remember one day I'm sitting there and this person walks in dressed like a college student, no offense to college students, it's just a college student, the dress is sort of like golf dad grungy, like walks in looking like that and just starts ordering people around. And I'm watching this guy, and for a second, I'm like, who gives this guy the authority to tell these people what to do? And I eventually realize, oh, this is the guy who owns the place. In the same way, when you look at the meekness of Jesus, who did not look like a powerful king, he didn't look like somebody who had the authority to give life and tell us what to do. But what we see is that he is the very God himself. Jesus makes this staggering claim that he's the one who comes to bring life, to bring something out of nothing, to bring something dead to a state of life. This is an act of creation itself. And when we think about the creative act of God, we think about creation in the world, it proves to us that there is a God, just something as small as a seed. When you think about a seed, there's, that's something that you and I can't recreate. We can take an apple from a tree and plant it in the ground. And eventually, an apple tree is going to form. We can't form the seed itself. In the same way, we can't bring the deadness of our hearts to life. That's something Jesus alone can do. The second responsibility we see for Jesus is that he's a judge. Verse 22, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Again, something the father alone was thought to be able to do. We see in, in Genesis 18, Abraham appeals to the Father as a judge and he wants God to judge justly. And Jesus here again is claiming to have responsibility for what God alone is able to do. And so if you've been with us for a while or you were listening or were here at, back in the fall when we heard John 3, this might seem like a bit of a contradiction. Because in John three seventeen, Jesus said that he did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. So what exactly is Jesus talking about here? we need to understand that jesus is talking about two different times with two different purposes when jesus is talking in john three seventeen, he's talking about his first coming into the world that is jesus came god himself took on flesh he didn't have to come into the world to condemn it because the world was already condemned the fact that we love darkness and evil and brokenness and we're given to broken systems of injustice and racism we look at our own hearts we're already condemned And so Jesus came into the world graciously to save us and to rescue us from that. But here he's talking about the second coming, his active judgment where Jesus will reign over all things and all things will come into the light. And the reason that Jesus gets to tell us how to live, the reason that Jesus gets to be the judge, the reason that Jesus gets to challenge you on things like sex and power and money and control and truthfulness is that he is God and he is judge. He's the standard by which all things are set. But also we see a blessing that he's been given. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Just as you honor the Father, equality, sameness. That the only way to get to the Father, the only way to truly honor the Father, the only way to truly love God is to honor and love his Son Jesus. Years ago, uh, my wife and I, Amy, had moved back to Birmingham. We had planted a church there, and I met up with an old college friend and his new wife. And we had a couple of kids at the time, and we left the kids with my mom, and we go to this restaurant with them. we sit down, we're having a great time, we catch up on college. And before I could say something about my kids, my friend and his wife said, man, I'm so glad you guys didn't bring your kids to dinner tonight. We don't like kids. We just want to know that we can have a friendship with you without your children being around. And I'm like, well, we're not going to be friends, because my children are part of me. They're, they're they're intricately linked to me and i'm going to choose them over you any day in the same way you can't reject the son and receive the father you can't reject the one that god sends and receive the father this shuts the door on any other way to god and that may seem narrow but it's purely logical. Every other way of getting to God says, prove yourself, do more, be better, get your way to God. But Christianity says, God, the Son, came to you. Receive Him, receive His love, His mercy, His goodness, and His grace for you. So we see that Jesus first claims to be God. But here's the second piece of evidence not just His relationship with the Father, but secondly, the relation or revelation of the Word. Look at, uh, oh, flip over to verse 30. We see Jesus reiterate again what he had said in verses 19 and 20. I can do nothing of my own. It's I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But Jesus is not satisfied with just identifying himself as God. He wants you to truly know this because he knows it's a big claim. For someone to come along and say, I am God, would be like me coming along and saying, I'm the king of Scotland. I need some verification, right? I don't have a Scottish accent. I don't look Scottish. I'm not wearing a kilt, you're welcome. Um, you can, you, I can't just say, take my word for it. Jesus here says, don't just take my word for it, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What is Jesus saying here? There are a few things at play. First of all is the Jewish legal burden. In, Jew, in Jewish court and Jewish culture, you needed two to three witnesses to verify something. And if you couldn't do that, it was considered untrue. But the other part of this is that Jesus was one of many who had come along and claimed to be the Messiah. There were lots of people before Jesus and lots of people after Jesus who came along, and most of them were political revolutionaries who were coming along trying to stir up war. Jesus says, don't just take my word for it, but there's another who's a witness for me. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Who is Jesus talking about? He goes into this aside about John the Baptist, verse 33. You sent to John, and he, was born, he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So you, know, you could believe John. He was a burning, lamp and, burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The word is not from one good person. He's saying, the one who is my witness is God himself. And he speaks through his word. What Jesus is referring to here is the scriptures. And that's why at the end of the passage, in verse 45, he says, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. Moses was shorthand for the Old Testament. In other words, the word itself is a witness to Jesus. He's saying, test me, look at who I am, look at my works and test them against god's word now there's an important distinction here i want to make about the bible there's a difference between a book being about something and being from something there's a difference between the bible being about god versus from god if it was about god it would be men writing about god if it's from god it's spoken through him so this is the difference between writing a biography and receiving a handwritten letter It's not enough to know about God, you need to know God. And we believe, and the readers and the hearers of this would have believed the same thing, that these are words from God. That these are words from God, spoken through people, written down and divinely inspired to tell us who God is. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look at the scriptures and compare it to me. Look at the scriptures and compare it to my life. I want you to see what the Father is like through my works, verse 36. But the the other half of it, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I'm about the Father's business. And if you just look close enough, if you just read the scriptures, you're going to see me. You're going to see that I look like God. He's saying that you'll see the mercy, the tenderness, and the holiness of Jesus. And when you do, you're going to see the Father. Now, the first time that uh, I met Matt and Sue, so Matt, Matt's up in the booth. Sue's up here. raise your hand for those who don't know you. The first time I met their son, Ben, there was no question Ben was their child. No question, because it looks just like both of them and acts just like Matt. Like, I'm, I'm watching the two of them, and I'm like, this is clearly your child. They're the, absolutely your biological child. And the reason I know this is because I've talked with Matt and Sue. I've been in their home. I know what they look like. I know how they react, I know what they find funny. And as Ben would start talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was your mom. He'd make a look and I'm like, oh my goodness, you have the same hairline as your dad. We all pray for Matt Harris's hairline in our sixties. I looked at him and I'm like, clearly you are their son. And when you look at the Bible and you look at the Old Testament, which by the way, there's enough evidence in the Old Testament alone to show you that Jesus is God. You should look at Jesus and say, man, that looks and sounds a lot like the father. Because he looks just like his dad. And when you look at all the other pretenders who'd come along, who were seeking power instead of laying down power, who were seeking to use people versus serve them and save them, we see that Jesus stands above the rest. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. We see in the last passage that Jesus worked to heal the invalid man, and that demonstrates that God longs to make all things broken whole. And we see that the work on the cross that Jesus completed for us is the ultimate proof of God's word. The scriptures point out and predict the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus among over 300 direct prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. There's this beautiful picture in in the book of Isaiah as the prophet tells of the suffering servant who came and who was strucken down for our sins, who who took the penalty we deserve. And then a couple of verses later, it says, then he, the suffering servant, shall see his offspring. That only happens if he's alive. And the greatest work possible to show us that God's word is true, is that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. Rebecca McLaughlin says about the cross, she says, the crucifixion should have been the final proof that Jesus wasn't God the proof that he could not oppose the power of Rome, the proof that he was not the great I am. And if Jesus had stayed dead, the proof would have been undeniable that Jesus rose again. Jesus's life is a vivid picture of the word of God and the revelation of God's word has always had one purpose, that the work of the son would show us the love of the father. Now, as much as the scripture is a witness for Jesus, it's also a witness against people. It's a witness against us and our hard-heartedness. Look at verse 37. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. We we have often refused to listen to him. His form you have never seen. The, The people who were seeing this saw Jesus and refused to deal honestly with him. Verse 38, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who sent me that the word of God has not penetrated your soul. It hasn't changed you so you don't trust him. And I believe we see two ways here that we fail to allow the word of God to change us. One is very religious and the other is very not. And I'm gonna pick on the religious people first because that's more fun. Verse 39, and it's in order, so it helps out. Uh, Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Again, in verse 46, they believe, or 45, that's where they had put their hope. You can read the scriptures in such a way and miss Jesus. And the the Jews, they they knew every letter. They they knew every detail. They described it as knowing every jot and tittle, which was every little pointing on on the Hebrew language. And they searched and searched and searched and searched the scriptures They would memorize large swaths of scripture. And now Jesus isn't saying that reading the Bible is bad. He's saying, just don't miss the point. You can read the Bible and miss the point. Don't let it become so rote that the words are bouncing off your heart like rain off the windshields. Think, think about this. We, most of us, if, if you grew up in America, you recited the Pledge of Allegiance every day in school. How, when was the last time you went back and thought about the words of the Pledge of Allegiance? Never. I mean, I was in first grade slogging through, like half eating a Pop-Tart, trying to listen. We come to the Word of God in the same way sometimes. And it doesn't actually penetrate our hearts. And what happens when we do that is we end up taking the word of God and we make it a how-to. Okay, well, here's some things I need to do in order to make God love me. So if I do this, God's going to bless me. If I obey this way, God's going to get make me whole and make my, make me happy. And we miss the point that it all points to Jesus and it's never been about your ability to keep it. And this is what Jesus gets at in the Sermon on the Mount when he looks at them and he says, you may have heard it said that Thou shalt not murder, but what I say is that if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. What Jesus is getting at is that you can think that you can be good and right with God by just avoiding doing wrong things, but what about your heart? Has there ever been a moment where you have pure motives? Has there ever been a moment where the desires and the motivations of your heart were completely and fully right? And so one way we can read the Bible wrongly is to make a list of rules. Another way is to just try to pick it apart like a critic. We try to see through everything, and as C.S. Lewis said, when you see through everything, you see nothing. We can use the Bible as a way to feel intellectually or spiritually superior to other people, and each of these is a way that we try to find life through God's Word without looking to Jesus. If I just do enough and understand enough and be better enough, I'll be okay. But what Jesus does is he says, I don't want you to miss this. Look at the end of verse 39. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures are an invitation to see Jesus, an invitation to come to Jesus. So, when you read the Bible, I want you to read it to stir your love for Jesus, that you would not just want to know about him, that you would want to know him. And as you read about Jesus, your heart is drawn toward him. I've mentioned this before, but I had a grandfather who lived in Maryland. We called him Granddaddy Maryland because he lived in Maryland. I've been like once in my life. And uh, when I was in junior high, we started writing letters back and forth to one another. My grandfather was a wonderful penman. He had a way with words, and he'd write these long, you know, six-page legal letters, front and back letters to me a few times a year, and I began to write back to him. And I got to know my grandfather through through letters. And there came a point where I had the opportunity to go to Maryland, and I said, I've got to go meet this person that's been writing to me for the last 12 years. So when I was 21, I went and actually met the person that i have been reading about. There was an invitation in those letters to come meet the person who'd been writing to me. In the same way, there's an invitation in God's word to see and know Jesus. The other error, and you don't have to be religious at all to do this, is to take God's word and to only choose and pick and choose what you want it to mean. Verse 43, I've come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. There's a tendency among those who even like people who teach the Bible to teach it in such a way to slant it towards you where you don't actually have to change. It just kind of butts up next to your life. And we do this really easily in America. We have a a tendency of doing this. I think one issue right now is comfort and health and wealth. And we believe that if I just believe God enough, I don't have to change the way that I'm living. People have used God's word to justify horrible acts, but by ignoring whole swaths of scripture. As we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King this weekend, we're reminded that there are those who attempted poorly to use the scriptures to justify systemic racism and slavery. But yet, if we read the scriptures honestly, they challenge us. We we always look for another way to be in control. And we see in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We can read the scriptures in such a way that we never have to change. And it just makes us feel good about ourselves. We want people to tell us how great we are, that we have potential, that we just need to unlock it, and work hard enough, to dig deep enough, and we kind of buffet-style the scriptures and pick and choose what we like rather than submitting to the hard stuff we don't quite understand. We're all tempted to make God out in our own image. Now, you also might be saying this morning that, you know, well, why, why can't everyone just determine what is right and good for themselves? Like, why can't Jesus just be one way? And, you know, how do we all really know? Well, Tim Keller talked about the illustration of the the man, the blind man and the elephant. And so we're all like the blind man and the elephant. We're one blind man, he's touching the elephant and he he touches the leg and he thinks he understands the whole thing. And the other person, he thinks, I think think I'm touching a tree. The other person touches a tail and he thinks he's touching a reed. Another person touches the the nose and thinks that he's he's found a snake. And what he's saying is that none of us really know, but we're all touching the same elephant. And that sounds really humble until you realize that the person telling you that is claiming to see the whole elephant. Every claim we make is an absolute claim. Every true claim we make is saying, this is the standard of what you should believe. And the question we have to look at when we come to Jesus is this, is what standard are we gonna believe? We're gonna believe our own experiences, which are fleeting and changing. Are we gonna believe the the tone of the culture, which has changed like the wind? Or are we gonna believe God's word, which is perfect and timeless? And Jesus again and again points us to his word to show us himself. So I want to encourage you to really read the scriptures, especially this morning if you're coming. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus yet and you're skeptical and you just want to read the scriptures. And I want to give you some tips about reading the scriptures to help you as you do this. Number one is dig deep. Read slow and sit with it. Don't just read it like you're reading the Pledge of Allegiance. Really understand it. And that might mean you need to read one or two verses and that's okay. It's not a race. It's not who can read more. We don't do that. Read it slowly. Understand it. Secondly, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus with wonder and expectation. Thirdly, don't pick it apart. Don't look for all the errors that are supposedly there, but submit to it as it's written, and don't try to fit your ideas in around it. And then lastly, let it read you back. Let it challenge you and change you. And as you do, you begin to see that Jesus demands a response, that you should trust Jesus because he has the authority to demand a response from you as God, a response to his person and work. And we see this beautiful invitation as you hop back to verse 24. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Those who will hear and believe in what Christ has done will find Life. Now I want you to notice a couple of verbs here. It says here that, it says, first of all, it says that, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment and has passed from the death from death to life. You have these things now. It means right now in Christ you can have life. It means that right now you don't have to bear the weight of guilt or shame or sin that right now you are no longer under judgment if you are in Christ. You are free. Right now, you begin to experience eternal life through experiencing Jesus. Now again, this may bother you because Jesus' claim seems so narrow, but you know, what about good people from other religions? Jesus is saying, I'm the only way. We need to understand that this is not about good versus bad, but this is about death versus life. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. Your state without Christ is not that you're a pretty good person who needs a little bit of help. You're a dead person who needs to live. You're, you're a dead person who can do nothing to bring yourself to life, and Jesus has graciously come to give you that life, that the only one who has the authority to give life is willing to give it. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man, by the way, was Jesus' favorite way to describe himself because he identifies with us. The experienced everything that you and I have experienced, and we see that this moves the heart of Jesus towards compassion, and he offers his perfect life in exchange for yours. In the future, hope of all who hear and trust Jesus is life forever. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good for the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The question is, is which do you want? Do you want the life that Jesus offers, or do you want to be the authority of your own life and risk judgment? Will you trust Jesus with your life? Will will you trust him with everything? Will you trust because he's one with the Father? Will you trust because the word is evidence of his work? Will you trust that the greatest display of the love of God was demonstrated for you at the cross and can be received simply by faith? And if you're a follower of Jesus, are you living in the middle of that hope right now? Now, let us marvel together at Jesus this morning. Let's pray.